Deutsche Bibliothek der Reinigung. Before we get going with our first few sections, I'd like to go over a few things. The podcast will be hosted for now on Anchor FM. I have no misconceptions about eventually being banned from using the service, but for now, Anchor FM is our home. The podcast will serve to bring high-quality books in audio format to the listener. As an avid reader, it's long been my goal to bring Third Reich literature to a broad public. I would also like to make an appeal that the listener reach out to Radko Miladish 14 at ProtonMail.com. That's R-A-T-K-O-M-L-A-D-I-C-14 at ProtonMail.com with any questions, comments, or inquiries about donations. It has been a roller coaster few months, and if you appreciate this work, please consider donating. Thank you. All right, so let's jump right in with Chapter 8, Major Walter Nowotny, Vilna, October 19th, 1943, shortly before midnight. In the Ria bar, the telephone rang. The office clerk, a German Oberfeldwebel, picked up the receiver. He covered his left ear with his free hand for the noise from the cheerful throng inside reached into the telephone booth next to the bar. Herr Hauptmann Nowotny to the telephone. A young officer got up from a stool. With uncertain steps, a cigarette in his hand, he walked toward the corner where the telephone was. Yes, no want me here. There was a crackling in the line. Then a voice squeaked. Hauptmann no want me? Yes, speaking. One moment, please. I'll connect you with the Fuhrer. Shocked and surprised, no want me about the cigarette dropped to the floor and raised his right hand to his throat. Now, here of all places. But perhaps a comrade was playing a joke. That wasn't out of the question. After all, everyone knew that today he had shot down his 250th enemy aircraft and that he was celebrating with a few old friends in the bar. Seconds later, he received congratulations for the diamonds which Hitler had just awarded him in the Ria bar in Vilna, surrounded by pretty girls and laughing friends. The surroundings seems, suddenly seemed less comfor- comfortable to Nuwatni. The next day, Nuwatni flew to Führer headquarters to receive Germany's highest decoration for bravery. It had been more than two years earlier, on July 23, 1941, when he shot down his first enemy aircraft, a Russian I-18. Three months earlier, on April 1st, he had been promoted to Leutnant. Then, two days later, after shooting three Soviet machines out of the sky, he almost became a victim himself. The third enemy aircraft went down in flames, and Nowotny headed for home. But over the Baltic, near the island of Uzel, he ran out of fuel. Forced landing? No. He would bail out. Nowotny spent three days in his inflatable raft, exhausted, under the blazing sun all day long and in bitter cold by night. He lost consciousness and on awaking found himself in a farmer's bed. Latvians had spotted his life raft, pulled him ashore, and saved the young flyer's life. In August, Nowotny received the Iron Cross First Class for his tenth victory. This was followed on September 14, 1942 by the Knight's Cross after 56 kills. Flying near Leningrad, Nowotny shot down seven Soviet fighters in one day. Later, he was on patrol with other aircraft when they were attacked by 60 enemy fighters. Three I-18s fell to Nowotny's guns before his own aircraft was hit. His measure Schmidt was on fire, but the young pilot nevertheless landed successfully. The youthful Oberleutnant embarked on a tremendous run of success. By now, he was the leader of a Staffel in the Gruppe commanded by Major Philip. With 203 kills, Philip led the field of German fighter pilots. Nowotny never missed an opportunity to dogfight, nor did he hesitate to attack superior numbers of enemy aircraft. 
He shot down the first Spitfire and one of the first American fighters which the Russians had received from the Western Allies under Len Lease. The aircraft were flown by Russian pilots. <clears throat> On one occasion, he tackled 14 enemy aircraft alone in his Fokke Wolf, shooting down three and returning with the shot-up machine. On July 17, 1943, he reported his 100th kill, and on July 24th, his 124th. On August 18th, he shot down his 150th and, on, and 151st enemy aircraft, and three days later, his 161st. Nowotny's successes were reported almost daily by German radio. The young Oberleutnant now commanded a Gruppe, and by September 1st had 183 kills to his credit. He shot down 10 enemy aircraft in one day. Two days later, on September 3rd, 1943, after his 191st kill, he received the oak leaves, and on September 22nd, the swords for his 220th victory. After this run of success, Walter Nowotny was Germany's most successful fighter pilot. Behind him were Major Philip with 203, Major Graf with 202, and Hauptmann Rahl with 200. Nowotny was promoted to Hauptmann following his 225th kill. When he became the first pilot in the world to shoot down 250 enemy aircraft, a tremendous speed in only 442 missions, the airfield flak fired a salute, and the, men's, and the men of the Geschwader created a fireworks display with signal flares. <clears throat> Germany's most successful fighter pilot was receiving the Diamonds. That was Walter Nowotny's path from his first victory to the amazing telephone conversation in the Ria bar in Vilna. Walter Nowotny was a modest man. His father was a railway official, his two brothers officers. One was posted missing in Stalingrad. When the mayor of Vienna, Dippel uh, Hannes Bleschke, awarded the young major Walter Nowotny the sing city's ring of honor, the 22-year-old officer didn't want to accept it out of modesty. He suggested that he hadn't earned such an honor, but the city administration and the mayor insisted. Nowotny had never dreamed that he would become such a public figure. He had been born in the small city of Gmund on December 7, 1920. The young man became a singer in the Cistercian convent in Svetl. When his father was transferred, to the, the family moved to Wadehofen, where he attended high school. Nowotny passed his final examinations with a mark of very good. From the labor service, he joined the Luftwaffe as an officer cadet and on October 1, 1939, was called up at Breslau Schogarten. At first, he flew fighter cover for the Leuna Works, then he was transferred to Jägeschwader 54 under Major Trauloft. Nowotny was a gifted pilot, a tough fighter and a man who loved the social life. He was not happy when, in February 1944, he had to give up his Gruppe and leave his Geschwader to take command of Fighter Training School 1 in Po in the French Pyrenees. The order came from on high. In Poe, he simultaneously took command of Jag Geschwader 101 as Commodore. Nowotny wanted to fly, for flying was his passion, but in Berlin, in the headquarters of the General de Jagdflieger, they had come up with a new mission for him. Nowotny was to lead the first ME-262 unit. The first Staffel or Gruppe, perhaps even a Geschwader, would be equipped with the world's first turbojet-powered fighter. This, excite, this assignment excited Nowotny, even though he knew little about the ME-262, and ME stands for uh, Messerschmitt. All he knew was that aviation and the air war was about to enter a new phase. The first time he saw the Miracle aircraft, he was amazed. The Messerschmitt design had a nose wheel undercarriage, a wingspan of 12.65 meters, 
and was 10.60 meters long. Two jet engines, each of which produced 1,980 pounds of thrust, were said to propel the machine as if shot from a catapult. With a speed of 850 to 900 kilometers per hour, it was then the fastest aircraft in the world. The fuel consumption of 2,500 liters per hour caused no headaches, as the turbines were very simple and could achieve peak performance using low-grade fuel. The fast fighter's armament was extraordinarily heavy. Four 30-millimeter cannon with a total of 360 rounds of ammunition made the aircraft a deadly attacker. Later it was to be equipped with 16 or 24 R4M air-to-air rockets beneath each wing each of which was sufficient to bring down an enemy aircraft. Nowotny was enthusiastic. Granted, the aircraft required a takeoff and landing surface two kilometers long, and landing this new bird was very difficult. As well, aerobatics were impossible with the aircraft. But dogfighting was no longer necessary. The future program for Messerschmitt jet pilots consisted of sweeping turns and shallow dives. The aircraft climbed so rapidly that other maneuvers were unnecessary to approach the enemy. This miraculous machine flew like a bullet, enabling deadly surprise attacks to be made. Nowotny was to command a unit of these, heavy fighters, which it was hoped would bring about a change in the way aerial warfare was conducted. This did not come to pass due to errors committed by higher authorities. Nowotny test flew the ME-262 at Reschlin. He gathered, all, he gathered about him several of his former Geschwader comrades, all successful fighter pilots for only first-class pilots could survive against the English and Americans, who are now escorting the bomber units with long-range P-47 Thunderbolt and P-51 Mustang fighters, which circled their charges tirelessly like watchdogs. The Whatney's greatest worry related to the production of the ME-262. Only 564 machines had been built, while at the time of the invasion the other side possessed 12,387 aircraft, 5,600 of which were fighters. In addition to difficulties in the production program, there were material and technical problems. Good pilots crashed for reasons other than enemy action. The jet engines failed, and the aircraft fell to earth like a stone. Only a few pilots succeeded in escaping by parachute. The responsibilities of his new position weighed heavily to know what me. He held lengthy discussions with his pilots in an effort to eliminate shortcomings and identify new problems. The aircraft was so good and so effective that it made all the effort and the sacrifices worthwhile. The Allies were surprised and shocked at the performance of the ME-262. If the Germans manufacture this aircraft in quantity quickly, our losses will become so great that we will be unable to risk sending any aircraft over German territory, England's bomber leader Harris said to Churchill. His prognosis was correct. Had the ME-262 been accepted into the large-scale fighter program and produced exclusively, Harris's fears would have become a reality. But Hitler had other ideas. On his order, the ME-262 was to be used as a fighter bomber. The decision was contrary to the advice of the experts and went against all strategic reason. The pilots who had tested the aircraft were speechless when Reichsmarschall Goering, jumping on Hitler's bandwagon, stated that the ME-262 was too fast and that pilots wouldn't be able to hit anything with it. The initial teething troubles in the testing program were soon overcome. Under Nowotny's command, the first successes were achieved while the jet unit's losses were low. Although Nowotny himself had been forbidden to fly, one day he climbed into an aircraft and took off after a bomber formation. In a matter of minutes, he shot down a four-engine bomber with a single burst from his cannon. Afterward, he asked General der Jagdflieger Adolf Galland and the Reichsmarschall to lift the flying van. Both said no. 
The senior Luftwaffe commanders didn't want to lose an officer like Nowotny who possessed special command and organizational talents. They saw in him one of the leading men of the new Luftwaffe. However, things were to turn out very differently. Achmer, November 8, 1944. The telephone rang in Commando Nowotny's command post. The Commodore was on the airfield. Moments later, he had the receiver in his hand and learned that the previous evening's visitor was coming back. Nowotny said, Yavol, Herr General. I'll be waiting, and hung up, but he was not enthusiastic. Since the day before, the General de Jagdflieger and General Oberst Keller, Goering's representative, had been in the young jet commander's area of command. The general said what Goering had told him to say. The aces of past year, years had become cowards. The Luftwaffe had lost its spirit. The Reichsmarschall insisted that he would man the new jet fighters with young men who had been trained as glider pilots. Nowotny couldn't believe what he was hearing. He protested vigorously against the notion that the older aces, of whom he was one, were cowards. He brazenly spoke his mind and asked how it was that experienced pilots were being sent to the infantry instead of being used as instructors. Perhaps Nowotny would still be alive if the sentence about cowardly fighter aces had never been spoken. The major looked at the clock. The general and his party arrived. The reception was frosty. Nowotny felt offended. They discussed the situation in the air and possible countermeasures. General Galland expressly declared that Nowotny was not able to fly as he was needed in the command role. Immediately afterwards, the signals officer reported the approach of a large number of enemy aircraft. Nowotny gave the order to take off. Moments later, the jet fighters made contact with the enemy, shot down several aircraft, and began a second attack. Then radio contact was lost with Leutnant Schall. His Messerschmitt crashed near Bramschke. Another aircraft made a forced landing, while a third was caught in a hail of bullets from two Mustangs in a flying fortress and fell to earth. When Nowotny heard the bad news, there was no keeping him in his command post. His best friends were being killed while he sat idly by. He recalled the general's words. The older fighter pilots have become cowards. Dismayed, he stared at the generals. Had one of them really said that the older fighter pilots had become cowards? Good, he said. He, he had said it, and he, Major Nowotny, would convince him otherwise. Before General Gallen could stop him, the Major had left the building and was sitting behind the wheel of his car. He turned in the seat and called back, I'm sorry, Herr General, that I cannot obey your order, but I'm going to fly now and prove that we can still achieve something. Then he drove off. Gallen shouted after him, ordering him to come back, but Nowotny did not hear. Seconds later, he dove on an enemy bomber formation flying in the vicinity of the airfield. Like an arrow, he shot toward a Boeing and blew off a wing with his first burst. The flying fortress went into a spin, flames shot from the machine. It raced toward the earth like a stone. Nowotny now turned to attack one of the escorting Mustangs, but suddenly his aircraft sagged. Those in the ground control station heard Nowotny's desperate call. The jet engines were no longer functioning. The machine was losing altitude. Nowotny jettisoned the canopy. His parachute billowed open, but as it had opened too soon, it became caught on the tail surfaces. The Messerschmitt crashed on the airfield. Beside it lay the shattered body of Walter Nowotny. The state funeral took place in Vienna. He was buried in a grave of honor in the central cemetery next to the Luger Chapel. Nowotny found his last resting place among scientists, statesmen, and poets. Vienna wanted to give its bravest soldier a worthwhile burial site. A few months later, after the Red Army had taken the city, communists destroyed the mound under which Nowotny was buried. The Soviets turned the cemetery into a cow pasture, and the city administration refused to care for burial sites. 
Family members made repeated requests to be allowed to erect a headstone, but were refused. Not until later, in 1950, were Nowotny's parents and brother at Adolf per permitted to mark the grave of the successful flyer. On a small, inconspicuous tablet was the name Walter Nowotny. Until then, no one knew who lay buried there. The authorities declared that it was a, quote, unknown soldier. But the Soviets and communists cannot prevent the populace from placing flowers, wreaths, and candles at the grave of Walter Nowotny. And then all at once, the youth became, began coming. No one organized them. They came on their own. Their parents had told them who it was who lay in the central cemetery, and the Soviets were in the process of withdrawing. These young people transformed the grave into a sea of flowers and mounted a death watch on All Souls Day. They did it not as a demonstration, but rather to pay thanks to someone who had accomplished much in the course of his heroic life. <clears throat> However, the police showed little understanding. They carried out lengthy investigations and sought the ringleader. The Viennese shook their heads. They had not forgotten Walter Nowotny. They venerated him, the brave pilot who had proved that the old aces were not cowards. Walter Nowotny was also held in high esteem by the fighter pilot fraternity in the enemy camp. The highly decorated French pilot Pierre Klosterman, who flew with the RAF, wrote in his book, The Big Show, quote, Walter Nowotny was dead. Our adversary over Normandy and in the German skies was killed the day before yesterday. The Luftwaffe, who declared, whose declared hero he was, would not long survive his death, which was as it were the turning point of the air war. That evening in the mess, his name was often on our lips. We spoke of him without hatred and without rancor. Each one of us recalled his, memory, his memories of him with respect, almost with affection. It was the first time I had heard this note in a conversation in the RAF, and it was also the first time I heard openly expressed that curious solidarity among fighter pilots, which is above all tragedies and, and all prejudices. This war has witnessed appalling massacres, towns crushed by bombs, the butchery of Oradour, the ruins of Hamburg. We ourselves have been sickened when our shells exploded in a peaceful village street, mowing down women and children round the German tank we were attacking. In comparison, our tussles with Nowotny and his Messerschmitts were something clean, above the, f above the fighting on the ground, in the mud and the blood, in the deafening din of the crawling, stinking tanks. Dogfights in the sky, silver midges dancing in graceful arabesques, the diaphanous tracery of milky conden condensation trails skimming like toys in the infinite sky. We too, of course, were involved in less noble fighting, that strafing of trains in the gray dawn of winter mornings when you tried not to think of the shrieks of terror, not to see your shells smashing through the wood, the windows shivering in fragments, the engine drivers writhing in the burning jets of steam, all those human beings trapped in the coaches, panic-stricken by the roar of our engines and the barking of the flak. All those inhuman, immoral jobs we had to do because we were soldiers and because war is war. We could rise above all this today by saluting a brave enemy who had just died, by saying that Nowotny belonged to us, that he was part of our world, where there were no ideologies, no hatred, and no frontiers. This sense of comradeship had nothing to do with patriotism, democracy, Nazism, or humanity. All those chaps that evening felt this instinctively. And as for those who shrugged their shoulders, they just can't know. They aren't fighter pilots. The conversation had ceased. The beer mugs were empty. The wireless was silent as it was past midnight. Bruce Cole, who was neither poet nor philosopher, let fall these words. Whoever first dared paint markings on an aircraft was a swine.
Okay, let's continue on with chapter 9. This is a pretty short chapter, I believe. Yes. Um, it's entitled General Major Adelbert Schultz. The Soviets were attempting to break through near Kiev. Their artillery pounded the German positions ceaselessly. None of the German grenadiers believed they would come out of this hell alive. Somewhere near the German front line, heavy tanks sat behind the small straw-covered houses of a village. Looked upon as corset stays for the front, their job was to relieve the pressure where it was greatest. The tanks were under the command of a young Oberst. His men called him Panzer Schultz. He was Adalbert Schultz, and most of his tank drivers knew him simply as the commander who always had a cigar in his mouth. The Soviet offensive was aimed at the northern wing of the German infantry division, which had been under barrage fire for hours. Then the whistling and howling stopped, and with loud shouts of "Hooray!" the Soviet soldiers stormed out of their trenches. Mount up, the Oberst called to the infantry who were to accompany the counterattack. The 1st Battalion drove into the enemy's flank and drove him back to his jumping off positions. The Soviet attack formations were smashed. Then suddenly, Soviet tanks attacked. From his position in a village, Schultz watched them approach. He estimated 60 T-34s and KV-85s. They could not be allowed to reach the German infantry positions. If they broke through, they would be in a position to roll up the entire front. The consequences of this would have been unforeseeable. The 2nd Battalion, with which Schultz carried out the attack, lay in wait for the enemy in a shattered village. The heavy tanks took the Soviets in the flank as they drove past to the left and blasted the attack spearhead. By the time the following T-34s realized what was going on up front, they were already being fired upon by the German tanks. Of the 60 enemy tanks, not a single one returned to its starting position. Now Schultz wanted to exploit the success. He drove past the burnt-out and shattered wrecks, overran the Soviet trenches, and broke through to the artillery positions, where his tanks destroyed heavy guns and Stalin organ rocket launchers. Then he linked up with his 1st Battalion and expanded the attack. Schultz didn't have long to celebrate the success, however. Soviets moved up fresh forces and attempted to encircle the German tanks. They were aware that only a small force had broken through. Fighting hard, the Panzers withdrew to their own starting position. The Soviet attempt to encircle and destroy them failed. Along the way, Schultz's tank crews destroyed more than 150 T-34s. As a result of this action, the enemy called off his planned attack and regrouped his forces, giving the German command time to establish a stable main line of resistance. For this and other decisive acts, the energetic, clever, and aggressive Oberst, who commanded the 7th Panzer Division's 25th Panzer Regiment, was awarded the Diamonds. Adelbert Schultz was a native of Berlin. He was known for his readiness to strike and his unshakable calmness. Even when strong enemy forces attacked with the element of surprise and stood, as it were, at the front door, Schultz refused to let this unnerve him or force him to act in haste. In the Western Campaign, Schultz took part in the armored advance as a battalion commander in the same regiment, overrunning Belgian, French, and British positions and helping enable the breakthrough to Cherbourg. The division to which he belonged earned great honors in France. On September 29, 1940, Schultz received the Knight's Cross. The division went into the history of armored warfare as the Ghost Division and was skillfully led by a man who became the terror of the enemy, Erwin Rommel. Schultz's enthusiastic flexibility combined with the elan of a modern unit leader set the tone for success of his men, who were always victorious over the enemy. His concern for his troops knew, knew no bounds. He was a friend and father in one. 
Schultz originally wanted to become a bank employee. He graduated from a Berlin scientific secondary school, after which he became active in the banking field. From 1923 to 1924, he attended business school, but then gave up his chosen career and a year later joined the police. In 1934, he became a Leutnant, and in 1935 transferred to the Wehrmacht as an Oberleutnant. Schultz participated in the marches into Austria and the Sudetenland. He took part in the campaign against France as a Hauptmann. Schultz distinguished himself in the early weeks of the war against the Soviet Union. He broke into the retreating mass of enemy soldiers, completed minor encirclements, and led the way for the, for the following troops. Schultz gave a spectacular demonstration of his skill as a tank commander in the area around Klin, an army group center's sector. The energetic commander attacked a Soviet force eight times larger than his own and destroyed it. In the ice and snow of winter, with temperatures of 40 below zero, he mounted such vigorous resistance with his few tanks that the Soviets had to withdraw troops from other sectors to dislodge Schultz from his position. But the German commander lured the Soviets into a trap, allowed them to roll past, and attack from behind. Soon afterward, he broke into the flank of a Siberian guards regiment, rolled it up, and destroyed the fresh, well-equipped unit. In the same series of attacks, he, co he covered the retreat of German troops in a field hospital with more than 4,000 wounded. For these feats, Schultz was awarded the Oak Leaves on December 31, 1941. Meanwhile, promoted to Oberstleutnant in 1943, Adelbert Schultz assumed command of the 25th Panzer Regiment, later the 7th Panzer Regiment, with which he achieved such great success. Schultz and his unit repeatedly distinguished themselves whether acting as the focal point of the defense or leading an attack. On August 6 of the same year, Adelbert Schultz received the swords. In November, he was promoted to Oberst, and on December 14th, received a radio message informing him that he was being awarded the diamonds. Schultz was supposed to drive to Fuhrer headquarters to receive the decoration from Hitler. Instead, he advised, I can't leave. The devil's loose here. During the winter months of 1943, a heavy defensive battle broke out in the southern sector of the Eastern Front. The 7th Panzer Division was employed as a mobile fire brigade, closing gaps in the front, eliminating enemy penetrations, conducting counterattacks, and fighting off enemy assaults. The veteran Panzer Division was employed wherever the situation was in doubt. At the, off, at the outset of the battle, the division commander, General Major Hasso von Manteuffel, received orders from Führer headquarters to leave the 7th Panzer Division and take command of the Großdeutschland Division. Von Manteuffel asked that the implementation of the order be delayed until the 7th Panzer Division's defense's success was assured. Afterward, he would he would hand over the division to Adelbert Schultz, whom he proposed as his successor. Hitler agreed, and after Schultz had the opportunity to receive the diamonds in Führer headquarters on January 9, 1944, he was promoted on the spot to the rank of General Major and named Division Commander. Schultz, who had grown up in the division and earned the highest decorations for bravery, was now allowed to command the division which Rommel had once led. His objective was to lead the troops just as well and with the same success as his predecessor. But fate, had, but fate held something else in store. Following a brief leave at home with his family, Schultz returned to the front. His division had meanwhile been deployed in the Shepitovka area and was supposed to carry out a counterattack. The enemy defended grimly and showed no signs of willingness to abandon his positions. The attack got underway and several local penetrations were made, however the desired breakthrough could not be achieved. Schultz was about to outflank the enemy when he learned by radio that the attack had bogged down along the entire line. The division commander drove in his armored car to the battalions and ordered their commanders to attend a conference. 
but then a shell fell nearby. A shell fragment struck Schultz in the head and the general collapsed unconscious. Although he was taken immediately to hospital, it was too late. Adelbert Schultz died on the way to the hospital without regaining consciousness. The Wehrmacht communique of January 28, 1944 ended with the words, the fate and conduct of this man are shining in an obligating example. Okay, I think I have energy for one more chapter today. So this is chapter 10, we're on page 127, and this one's called Oberst Hans Ulrich Rudolf. You are the greatest and bravest soldier that the German people have ever had, said Adolf Hitler to the minister's son on January 1st, 1945. In October 1976, German Defense Minister Georg Leber forced two Air Force generals, Karl Heinz Kranke and Walter Kropinski, into retirement because they dared compare the National Socialist past of this soldier from a Christian family with the Communist past of the Social Democrat Herbert Weiner. Three decades after the Third Reich sank in rubble and ashes, the single recipient of that state's highest decoration for bravery had once again gained the attention of the entire nation. Hans Ulrich Rudel, 60, wearer of the golden oak leaves with the sword and diamonds and holder of a Paraguayan passport. Rudel's name had once again become a symbol. Once it had been synonymous with courage, now his person was a symbolic figure of the past. For members of the left and liberals, his name was like a red flag to a bull. The minister's son from Konrad's Waldau in Silesia had in fact belonged to a national so socialist organization. He was the troop leader, Scharfuhrer, in the Hitler Youth. But Rudil had never been a member of the National Socialist Party. For after his schooling in Schweidnitz and Gorlitz, he had joined the Luftwaffe as an officer candidate at the age of 20. Those who had known him as a child were amazed at his choice of careers. His mother recalled that her son had been delicate and shy. His sister observed that he had been afraid to go into the cellar alone and the assessment of his teacher. He was a lovely child but a terrible student. And yet in the decade which the young Rudel spent in the Luftwaffe, he was to fill his to fulfill his destiny. Rudel participated in the Polish campaign as an officer and observer in a reconnaissance corps book. In September 1940, at his own request, he was transferred to a dive bomber unit. Rudel became a Stutka pilot, one of those who dove his machine at the target like a hawk and dropped his bombs just before pulling up. In contrast to conventional bombers whose carpet bombing tactics caused damage over a wide area, a Stutka attack always concentrated on a single object. If one, can have a, if one can have a clear conscience at all in war, it is most likely as a Stutka pilot, Rudel observed later. In one of his most successful attacks, Rudel dove from the sky at an angle of 90 degrees in his Ju-87 and pulled out only 4 meters above the surface of the water. That was on September 23, 1941, when he destroyed the Soviet battleship Marat, which was 23,600 tons with a 1,000-kilogram bomb as it lay at anchor in Kronstadt Harbor. Rudel later said of this difficult mission, quote, It was horrible. There were flashes all around me. The air seemed to be filled with brimstone. The clouds shone yellow. The roar of exploding 
munitions even penetrated the thick paneling of the machine. I was nearly sick, and the flight was pure torture. We had flown a mission to the harbor area the day before, but today the flak was so massive that I had to have doubts about our success. Gruppe leader Hauptmann Stein had positioned himself right in front of me. I could see him clearly. The dive at an angle of 70 to 80 degrees took my breath away. I hung almost on the tail of the Steen's aircraft. Our high speed ruled out the use of dive brakes. I had the Marat in my sight. She came toward me faster and faster. The ship became even larger. I saw the open mouths of the anti-aircraft guns pointing threatening at, at me. Someone was sitting there and pressed the trigger, but I had to dive even steeper. I saw the horrified face of Hauptmann Steen's gunner. His eyes were wide with terror, for he feared that I would cut off his tail surfaces with my propeller. I summoned all my strength. There was no time to worry that a direct hit by flak might tear me apart. I had just flitted past steam. The Marat was square in my sights. Sailors ran about on the deck. Some carried ammunition, others took cover. They must see me. A flak turret turned in my direction. If it opened fire now. Then I pressed the bomb release button on the stick. I pulled back with all my strength, attempting to bring the machine out of its dive, for my altitude was only 300 meters. The 1,000 kilogram bomb I had just released wasn't supposed to be dropped from a height of less than 1,000 meters due to the threat of self-destruction by bomb fragments, but I didn't worry about that. I wanted to hit the Marat, nothing else. Although I pulled back on the stick like a madman, I had the feeling that the aircraft wasn't coming out of its dive. All at once I felt myself beginning to faint. It was a feeling I had never known before. Had the effort, in fact, been too great, I knew about no other way but to abruptly pull back with all my strength. There was a terrible feeling in my stomach and head when I heard the excited voice of my gunner, Sharnowski. Herr Oberleutnant, the ship has just exploded. Slowly I turned around. There lay the Marat, behind an almost impenetrable 400-meter-high cloud of smoke. Then I discovered to my horror that I was flying only three or four meters above the glassy surface of Kronstadt Harbor, but I realized that I was still alive. This feat earned Rudell a decoration, but he did not receive it. Hauptmannstein would have liked to recommend him for the Knight's Cross, but he didn't. I'm sure you will all understand that I can't single out one man after this courageous mission in which the entire group participated, even though that man sank the Marat. Please try to understand, but I consider the value of a close-knit team, such as we are, greater and more important than recommending Oberleutnant Rudell as the only one for the Knight's Cross. In addition to the Marat, Rudell and his Ju-87 sank a cruiser, a destroyer, and 70 landing craft, as well as severely damaged the battleship October Revolution. <clears throat> he destroyed bridges, took out bunkers, smashed supply columns. Rudell's growing fame spread far and wide, and decorations were showered upon him. He destroyed 150 anti-aircraft and anti-tank gun positions, shot down nine enemy aircraft in aerial combat, and six times landed behind Soviet lines to rescue downed crews. Rudell established a record which remained untouched to this day. 2,530 combat missions in the course of which he was himself shot down 30 times by flak in infantry ground fire. And yet all these numbers pale in comparison to one of his totals. Flying his dive bomber, Rudell single-handedly destroyed 519 Soviet tanks, five complete tank corps. A prayer often spoken by Eastern Front soldiers when the Red Army's T-34s advanced towards the German lines was, Dear God, let Rudell come. And he came often. Never has a single man inflicted such damage on an enemy at an age when most students are taking their exams today. It is no wonder that the Soviets put a price of 100,000 rubles on his head. There were days when he destroyed as many as 17 enemy tanks. He alone. 
For me, this was no sporting contest, Rudell said later. Rather, it was a battle of existence for life and death. It all came down to one thing. You or me. That's why one becomes a soldier, to fight. The young commodore of the Stutka Geschweider nevertheless stood out from his officer comrades. He neither drank nor smoked, and when the others gathered in the mess, he preferred to take up the javelin and the shot and train. On any day when the operational schedule allowed, the small 1.74 meters Spartan ran 10,000 meters cross-country. His passion for sports was rewarded. During a mission over the southern sector of the Eastern Front on March 21, 1944, an attack on a bridge over the Dnester near Yampol, the then Hauptmann Rudel's wingman was forced to land behind enemy lines. Rudel set his machine down beside, a crippled, beside the crippled aircraft to pick up the crew. However, the ground was soft, making takeoff impossible. Soviet soldiers appeared. The four Germans fled toward the west. Soon a broad stream, the Dnester, barred the way. They had to swim the river. Rudel's gunner, aware of the night's cross Oberfeld Webel Henschel, faltered and sank in the icy flood. Rudel, who had already crossed, swam back to help him, but his efforts were in vain. The other two had meanwhile reached the other shore where they collapsed. They were so totally exhausted that they fell easy prey to the Soviet soldiers who suddenly appeared. Rudel continued his flight. With a bullet in his shoulder and pursued by dogs and mounted soldiers, he walked barefoot about 50 kilometers to his own lines. A few days later, he undertook his 1800th combat mission. A week later, Rudel was decorated again, becoming the 10th soldier of the German armed forces to be, presented, to be presented the oak leaves with sword and diamonds by Hitler. The young officer had ultimately entered into the intimate circle of his leader. Rudel was enchanted by Hitler and was, as he later admitted, fascinated by him. On January 1, 1945, Hitler created a new supreme decoration for bravery for his faithful soldier the golden oak leaves with swords and diamonds. This decoration was created by Hitler for the most worthy soldiers who had carried out individual feats of skill and bravery. It was to be the supreme German decoration for bravery, and the intention was that it be awarded only 12 times. Rudel received the decoration and was promoted to the rank of Oberst at the age of 28. Rudel's first thoughts, however, concerned the flying band of which Hitler and Goering had spoken. Both were of the opinion that such outstanding officers and flyers should not be allowed to risk their lives. Instead, they should serve as an inspiration to the youth of Germany and pass on their experiences. Rudel was one of these pilots who either secretly ignored such a ban or who bombarded Hitler and Goering with requests that it be lifted. Rudel's tactics usually worked. In each previous case, Hitler allowed himself to yield and the flying ban was lifted, but not this time. Hitler was insistent that Rudel be banned from further flying. He knew of the officer's daring actions and he was of the opinion that he had done enough. Rudel was later to take on another greater mission. The just-promoted Oberst had this to say, Mein Führer, I will not accept the decoration and the promotion if I am not allowed to continue flying with my Geschwader. Later, Oberst von Bilau told Rudel that he and the other Wehrmacht notables had been struck dumb when they heard him say this. This young and highly decorated officer just promoted to Oberst had dared to contradict his supreme commander and even issue him a sort of ultimatum. Such a thing had never been, such a thing had never happened before. Hitler looked at Rudel for a long time. Very well. If you absolutely must fly, go ahead then, he said softly. But look out for yourself. I need you. The German people need you. Five weeks later, Rudel's luck ran out. On February 9, 1945, he once again took to the air against Soviet armor. A 40-millimeter anti-aircraft shell shattered his lower right leg, and limb was almost torn off. Rudel managed to crash land his stricken aircraft, and it was only the efforts of his gunner, Starb Arts Dr. Gettermann, which saved him from bleeding to death. 
The wounded pilot was taken to a dressing station in Silao, where his lower leg was amputated. But after only a few days in the hospital, his stump bandaged and fitted with a primitive prosthesis, Rudell climbed back into the cockpit of a Ju-87. By the end of the war, the one-legged pilot had destroyed 13 more enemy tanks. It was openly recognized that Rudell was a phenomenon, a type of soldier who had crossed a boundary between courage and fatalism, and who put himself to the breaking test. The minister's son from Conrad's Waldau fought on all fronts, on the Volga, on the Danube, and on the Oder. He was the sole foreigner to wear Hungary's highest medal for bravery. As well, he owned high Romanian and Italian decorations. Once, on learning that Rudel was to be removed from his area of command on Himmler's orders, General Field Marshal Schörner said to him, Rudel is worth a division. The commander of the Immelmann Geschwader spent the evening before Hitler's last birthday in the bunker beneath the Reich Chancellery. That day, Marshal Zukov had crossed the Oder and had launched the Soviet's assault on Berlin. Why, Rudel asked his leader, do you not negotiate a ceasefire in the West in order to achieve a victory in the East? Hitler smiled wearingly, indulging his hero. It is easy to talk about such a thing. Hitler's biographer John Toland described the scene. It was late after midnight when Rudel was dismissed, and when he hobbled through the anteroom, he saw that he was already filled with people who were eager to be among the first to congratulate the Fuhrer on his 56th birthday. A few days after Hitler's suicide, Rudel and his Geschwader flew out of Czechoslovakia to Kitzingen, near Würzburg, and surrendered there to Americans on May 8th. He was soon released on account of his injuries. Rudel had been wounded a total of five times. The wrecked Germany of denazification and re-education had nothing to offer him. He crossed the Austrian border illegally on foot and walked through the Zillertal to Italy, finally arriving in Rome. There he obtained a forged passport under the name of Emilio Meyer. Soon afterward, this Emilio Meyer arrived in distant Buenos Aires. Argentina's head of state, Juan Perón, welcomed the war heroes of the Third Reich warmly. Rudel went to work for the Argentinian Air Ministry. In the aviation works of Cordoba, he was assigned to the design group, where, he, where work was underway of the Polkui II fighter jet. Emilio Meyer was not the only prominent figure from the defeated Germany in Cordoba. Also active there were the former Fokke Wolf designer Kurt Tank and the all-wing aircraft specialist Dr. Horton. After working in the air ministry, I'm sorry. Also working in the air ministry were the former General Galland and the famous German bomber pilot Oberst Werner Bambauch, along with test pilots Henrique Behrens and Steinkamp. After emigrating to Argentina, Rudel wrote his memoirs. Entitled Trotzdem, the book was published in Argentina. Since then, it has been translated into eight languages, English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Japanese, Finnish, and Arabic, and has reached a total publication of over three million, almost a million in the United States alone. At least one illegal visit to the Federal Republic in the early 1950s, Rudel returned to Germany for good and became active in politics. But his political clock seemed to be stuck at 1845, and his views were viewed as having a strong nationalist tinge. Rudel, however, had a completely different view of things. He had fought for Germany, not for Hitler. Now he wished to dedicate his efforts exclusively to the welfare of the German soldiers who had fought in World War II. As he put it, that he was no totalitarian, rather a 100% Democrat. Rudel, I believe that our democracy has not yet reached the level of that in the USA. There one can state his views openly, something which we apparently still cannot do. Only one political direction is welcome. When I expressed my opinions, I immediately slandered and characterized as a Nazi colonel. 
Since the war, I have dared speak openly against the people who have slandered us soldiers. Consequently, I was classified as a radical writer. Rudel won no laurels as a politician. Nevertheless, the strength of will exhibited by this man in peacetime was just as impressive as that which he had shown during the war. In spite of his prosthesis, he became the first man to climb the highest volcano in the world, the 6,902-meter-high Luwe Yakao in Argentina. As a skier, Rudel won prizes and victory goblets wherever he competed. On one occasion at the skiing center of Bariloche on Monte Cathedral, he raced down the course, crouched low. Suddenly, to the horror of onlookers, he lost a ski and with it half a leg. A cry went up from the crowd, Mamma Mia! The skier skillfully maintained his balance on one leg. Rudel's prosthesis had come loose and carried on solo. Rudel's fame spread throughout the land following this incident. Afterward, he was known as the crazy German with one leg. But once again, fate struck Rudel a hard blow. In 1970, he suffered a stroke while ski training. He was treated in America's Mayo Clinic. Rudel's right arm was left paralyzed. Hans Ulrich Rudel never gave up on himself. The close shorn hair had become white, but there was still a gleam in his brown eyes. In spite of his disability, he became relatively prosperous through his book and his activities in South America on behalf of German companies such as Siemens. Always on the move, he commuted between Europe and the four South American countries of Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, and Paraguay, traveling on a German and Paraguayan passport. Several times a year, Rudel flew to the USA. He was a guest of the Air Force and consulted with four-star generals over a machine designated the Type A-10, which the Americans had designed on the example of the old Ju-87 Stuka. Rudel, I was asked my opinion on it and was supposed to speak about my experiences in combating tanks from air. Everywhere in the West, Rudel was welcomed as a respected guest. He, retri- he remained true to his motto, only he who gives up on himself is lost. The most highly decorated soldier of the former Wehrmacht died on December 18, 1982.